Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, comrades and compañeros, welcome to another edition of the Fifth Column. We usually have this preamble that, despite the fact that we've done sixty-five thousand episodes, I still don't know off the top of my head. Yeah, something about the news cycle, something about ourselves, mm-hmm. but. It's the same podcast. <laughs> the Almost Weekly. The Almost Weekly, right. and that is usually because of the person who is missing that it's Almost Weekly. <laughs> if it was up to us, it would be <laughs> be twice a week. Um, <laughs> Start look, like we this. can't laugh. You know he's Camille not going to listen to it. So like, no, he's right. not going to listen. Of course yeah. he's not. That's why I'm saying it. I yeah, mean, good okay. Lord. If you think if he was listening to this, I'd say, no, he almost died in a mudslide or something. Isn't that yeah. true? California. Something that happened in Tiburon. California's rough for the uninitiated, you know, when, uh, yeah, yes, after, yes. after the, the fire, then it rains. And when it rains, the hills come down. Uh, and that's a little bit. And the, something like that yeah. happened according to Camille. Now I haven't gone onto the internet to see if this is true, but I believe it to be true. So if you can confirm this, Matt, as a California fanatic, it and, has um, the, it has the, uh, the air of believability, uh, if you haven't read the uh, great John McPhee book, uh, The Control of Nature, um, I highly recommend it just in general. But uh, there's a, a, ch- a big long chapter in there called Los Angeles Against the Mountains that just basically lays out how absolutely insane it is to live anywhere in coastal California near a mountain because the mountains are the steepest in the country. And then the fire burns everything down. There's no roots. And then it rains. When was that written? 1988, 89, around there. Yes, because now that is down the list of about 300th problem in California. Yeah, that's true. (laughs) Living on the mountains that are surrounded by stabbing hobos. Um, (laughs) Before we introduce, I wouldn't even say guests, kind of the one that's going to fill Camille's uh, spot today. But one thing first. I was at a used bookstore one time, and I remember seeing a book about California that I picked up. And I realized it was written by sometimes neocon Muslim convert, Stephen Schwartz. Oh, who, right. Yeah. Yes. He wrote a book. I think it was before he became a Sufi, right? Sufi was his thing. And yeah. it was after 9-11. And he was still writing for like the Weekly Standard, but he became a Muslim. Very, very odd. And, and he kind of disappeared. Yeah. I wonder what uh, maybe our mm-hmm. illustrious uh, Camille uh, tryout, you know, replacement. Yeah. Yeah, is, uh, knows something about uh, Monsieur Schwartz. Do you, do you know this guy, right? Zed Jelani? Pretty, pretty impressive dude, right? You when, know him? Uh, you, you talked to him before? Who's Zed? No. Yeah. Have we, have no, we actually, have we, we hung out? I think, have we, have I think sure. we were in a green room together one time, like back when I was working at Think Progress. So this must have been like 10 years ago or something. Oh, that maybe me such a, yeah. Maybe yeah, we were like, place at, to start. we <laughs> might have been at HuffPost Live <laughs> yeah. waiting to oh, go wow. on, on uh, Josh Zepp's show. Yeah, back Josh Zepp's. Uh, Jelani, <laughs> fantastic. Uh, <laughs> that actually, uh, is that you? Or Alona are... Minkowski's uh, show for that. Moment. Oh, yeah. She had a right. show there, too. Um, that you are, uh, were a reporter at The Intercept. Mm-hmm. And prior to that, you have quite the progressive pedigree you would think progress uh the progressive change campaign committee Jesus which seems Christ. pretty progressive uh alternate etc but now you're at inquiremore.com which is a substack how did you go by the way before we get into the news of the day from think progress to the intercept to your own substack to positively reviewing john mcwhorter's book in the new york times yeah also. yeah it's funny so Think Progress, it doesn't actually exist anymore. It was it was a uh, weblog and kind of a newsletter run out of the Center for American Progress, which was a think tank that basically staffed the Obama administration. You know, John Podesta 
started this think tank to give the Democrats some progressive cover, basically, into to staff administrations. And yeah, so I worked at that at that think tank, and it was really interesting. I think when I worked there, I was probably the most the single most left wing staffer in the entire institution. And it was probably you know, several hundred people, maybe a couple hundred people or something, or 150. I don't know. I remember. Um, that. I, yeah, I probably was the single most left wing person who worked there. Um, and now it's funny. I feel like if I return there, I mean, there's no there's no think progress anymore, but there's still the, the think tank. I'd probably be somewhere in the middle, or or even maybe a little bit to the right, which is mm. which is kind of funny. Um, I think a lot of it is that, you know, I began sort of writing and doing uh, advocacy work, which is when I was at PCCC, you guys mentioned Progressive Change Campaign Committee. Um, I think a lot of that I was drawn to much of what the left like represented and much of what I thought progressives needed to be doing in the country. Um, but I think as the more like I spent time actually like writing stories and talking about issues, I felt like it was really, really constricting to just like be in that space. Um, because there were times when I would like approach an issue or approach a story and I'd be like, this doesn't really fit the like precise progressive narrative. Um, so I think over the past few years, I've just become a lot less partisan. Um, as part of the reason I actually left the intercept was, you know, I didn't have a goodbye cruel world, like, you know, Glenn Greenwald, huge fight with them or anything, but, um, <laughs> he wakes up in the morning and says goodbye. Yes, cruel world. You know, it's like 75 yeah, bucks. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's right. Um, it's like, look, you all, you've all you fucking assholes. Yeah. I was like, all right, Glenn, I mean, I didn't, down. I didn't do that, but like, I just kind of felt like it started as kind of like an adversarial kind of anti-power center, anti-government, anti-corporate kind of website that I thought was kind of taking on all sides. It became overall like a liberal website, right? Like now it sits very nicely with like Mother Jones or the Nation or something. Um, and I just didn't feel comfortable in that space anymore, so I, I took off from there. And I did basically an 18-month project for Berkeley. It was like a fellowship studying polarization and writing a series of articles around that and just freelancing for a bunch of places. And, um, you know, I decided I decided I was actually really comfortable doing that. Like, I have done uh, – I did a mini documentary over the summer for Fox News. I just wrote something for the New York Times, written things for the Atlantic. I mean, I'm jumping all over the spectrum because I think there's really good stories that, like, interest people um, all over the spectrum. And, it's, and it, you did something for Fox News. Uh, was that for the website? And and also, how did your former comrades, and one assumes some of them are still your friends, how did they react? To yeah, that? I mean, um, yeah, so like I made a, a mini documentary over the summer in West Virginia, uh, basically about a pharmaceutical plant that was closing down and, and uh, the, the impact it was having on this town where it had started. Um, and I did that for Fox Digital, so I went on the website, although they end up picking up a lot of these documentaries and putting them on the network as well. Um, yeah, I mean, I think some of my some of my former colleagues are like the other places I worked, like Think Progress or The Intercept. I think some of them are chill with it or cool with it. Uh, they kind of understand what I'm doing and like, you know, how I'm kind of pursuing um, what I just think is good journalism and like what needed like storytelling. But I do think some people kind of look at me like, you know, um, kind of like how Glenn is looked at by some people on the left. Like, you know, why is he with those people or why is he over there? Like, he's kind of a... Uh, you know, he's gone off the deep end or so on and so forth, which is I always tell people it's funny. Like if I went to like my state house or my state legislature and told them what my ideal world would be, they would think I was a communist or something. Right. Like, um, but because yeah, I'll like, write, because <laughs> I will like write a piece for the national review or I'll like do a documentary for Fox news. People are like, Oh no, you're one of them now. Like, which is to me a very silly view, but yeah, I mean, there's a whole bunch of you. I mean, uh, if you had told me in sort of 2012, if you had listed, Four people for me. And you'd said Glenn Greenwald, Lee Fang, Zed Jelani, 
Matt Taibbi, I'd say, is that the Politburo <laughs> that's going to take over when Castro dies? Um, <laughs> it didn't, didn't work out. There. I mean, I think you guys probably all still uh, share the same kind of economic worldview, but, you know, it shifted in kind of culture war stuff, though, didn't it? Yeah, I mean, I, I probably shifted a little bit on economic stuff. Like, you know, I do see, like, the downside of things like rent control and, you know, some small areas here and there. I think I, I've come a little bit more open-minded to, to the right-wing view, but... I think a lot of it is the social and cultural stuff, right? Like, I felt like the reason that I, like, started at Think Progress after, right after graduating from college is because I was really concerned about healthcare, right, and healthcare access. Uh, the fact that, you know, the U- U.S. really hasn't gotten it figured out and doing it affordably compared to, like, everywhere else. Um, and I was, you know, I was concerned about, like, bread and butter issues like that, right? Like, it never occurred to me that, like, there was an, a necessity to make sure that... Um, you know, the, the the sort of the trends over the past four or five years, particularly things that I start that when I look at them there, I relate to them as if um, they remind they remind me of things that I used to see on the right, you know, which is like uh, a very like piercing um, desire to control what other people think to some extent, uh, a very intense kind of fixation on symbolism and, and kind of cultural uh, taboos and norms on, on punishing people who we f- think are deviating from those things. Like I associate a lot of that with the l- religious right because I, like I grew up in Georgia, right, uh, in the 1990s, and I would always think that the people who were being most censorious, the people who really couldn't handle disagreement, couldn't take a joke, were on the right. Like the people who were mad about Dave Chappelle when I was in like middle school or high school were usually conservatives, right? <laughs> like, yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. So I think a lot yeah. of that just struck me as almost like a, a conservative or authoritarian type of bent of thinking, and it just really doesn't appeal to me, right? The the parts of, I guess, left wing thinking that appeal to me are, are things like charity, compassion, universalism, uh, being able basically to lift people up. Uh, I think there's a, a line Jesse Jackson used to say, "Don't look down on someone unless you're helping them up" or something like that. Like you know, that would be <laughs> that would be my my ethos, right? Like, don't those look down <laughs> unless. Yeah, yeah. I, 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 yeah no, sorry. I mean it's a good accent, and he has a very, he has a very, he has a very uh, pronounced <laughs> oh, voice. So, I, I, if anyone ever tried to cancel me for that, I would, I would say that I love Jesse Jackson. I do, yeah. and I've, I've expressed it, you know, even in all my disagreements. And um, I have told the story many times of the time that I did interview him. We didn't use it because it was very hard to understand him. Um, is that we're going to get to a lot of that stuff because, you know, I mean, you can't talk about politics and particularly the things that this show is interested in and you write about without getting to um, stuff like, you know, your review of John McWhorter's book and what is going on. So let's kind of bridge a few things here. You live in Virginia. There's a lot going on in Virginia. You mentioned West Virginia. There's a lot going on there too with uh, Joe Manchin, but a lot going on in Virginia. There's a couple things that I want to kind of focus in on. One is the school board stuff, and the other one is the governor's race. Now, on the school board stuff, I'm going to start this way. Normally, this doesn't happen. I often say that I don't watch cable news. Uh, And it's not just because I I don't – I just don't have it, right? So I don't go out and seek it out. Sometimes I see clips and things. But because I was trying to watch the World Series and uh, Turner Classic Movies, I got um, uh, what's the thing called, Matt? That uh, that Nancy has the sling, sling. whatever yeah. sling blade or whatever. Yeah, yeah. So I had that, and I, I turned it on tonight for the first time. So I it was like turn on CNN. In the past, CNN was that middle path when you wanted to watch news and didn't want to do from the left of MSNBC and from the right of Fox News. Uh, that's not the case anymore. I was not aware it was as bad as it is. And in, while, while I was watching this, it was at eight o'clock tonight. This was about an hour ago. 
Uh, Anderson Cooper was on, and he was on with uh, Jeff Tubin, who is on Skype uh, from from Oklahoma City. You'd think they'd learn that <laughs> yeah. lesson, but yeah, go I on. Know. I know. So, <laughs> so he was jerking off, and um, <laughs> he asked him a series of questions about this Merrick Garland hearing today, and it kept on coming back to the school board stuff. Now, I want to play you a clip here, about a minute long. I was kind of amazed by it. So I want to hear uh, what you guys think of it. Because it's about white supremacy. And that's on the rise in the Republican Party. The reason school boards are controversial is that some school boards have dared to teach that, you know, civil rights and African-American rights have not been so great in this country over the centuries, like when we had slavery and when we had Jim Crow. And that has so outraged the um the the republican party telling the truth about race in america that they feel the way to win elections and to win the governorship in virginia is to demonize these school boards for daring to tell the truth about race in america and that's really the core of what's going on here um and and that's even more chilling in a way than the posturing that went on today in the senate all right and here's a very very brief one of how the segment ended in case Jeff Tubin, between FAPs, uh, didn't make his point clear. This is how he ended the segment. The real world of our contemporary politics. I think he, you know, he, he handled it in a low-key way, but he was really irrelevant to what the Republicans were trying to do, which was to lie in advance of a white supremacist agenda. Mm. Jeff Tubin, I appreciate it. Thank you. He appreciates it. Thank you. Mm. I uh, don't really appreciate it. Um, have I gone totally insane? Is should I be watching CNN to understand that there's some sort of white supremacist Virginia uh, Proud Boys Brigade that's uh, kicking down doors in schoolrooms? Is that you live in Virginia? You pay attention to this stuff. What do you make of that read on the situation? Yeah, not only do I live in Virginia, but I have a teaching certification for Virginia, and I do teach part time. Actually, like I, do, I teach in some after school programs and some tutoring. So actually, I know the. I know the region in Northern Virginia very well, and I know a lot of the debates that have been going on. And those debates actually have been happening for a number of months um, before this all became like a national thing, right? Um, there were debates about some of the selective high schools and like how should they use testing to get people in? Should it be a holistic process? There were debates about curriculum. There's debates about COVID and masking. Um, and I don't think at any point in any of those debates that any white supremacists show up. I didn't see any one in a Klan hood. Uh, I didn't see anything resembling what Tubin was talking about. Um, and I think the, the clip that you just played, I, I hadn't heard it until now, um, but it's kind of exemplifies some of the media problem, which is that it's totally fine, like, have an opinion. We understand that Tubin's kind of a commentator. It's not just like a, he's not, you know, straight-laced AP beat reporter or anything. Um, but his opinion got so in the way of what was actually happening that you really can't even tell, like, what's happening in reality from listening to him, right? You really <laughs> would think that, like, the Virginia Republican platform is that we should just teach that slavery was awesome and that, you know, uh, minorities suck and, like, white people are awesome. And, like, you know, that's, that's not... I think the platform yeah. is that, it, that slavery was super awesome. Yeah, like... Yeah. Uh, Matt, you actually... You're, aren't you writing about the media coverage? Isn't this it, your thing now? The, uh, <laughs> the, the crazy thing about this... Um, I've spent the last couple of days 
uh, marinating in some of the media coverage of school board protests, um, which is really actually very reminiscent of the media coverage in 2009 when there was a bunch of uh, pretty pissed off Tea Party types going to uh, congressional town halls that summer. And it was responded oh, yeah. to by uh, E.J. Dion has the the headline that I remember the most. They called it the politics of the jackboot. Um, this is to describe people showing up to these things. And there was uh, our uh, Mary Catherine Ham once did a really exhaustive look at uh, all of the uh, allegations of widespread violence. That happened at these things. She counted every single incident and it was almost non-existent. It was very, very small numbers, but it was just widely portrayed in the media as a sort of panic at the grassroots people who, of course, are being whipped up by uh, uh, puppet masters. So this is absolutely happening right now. I I looked uh, uh, yesterday at uh, Minnesota Public Radio. Uh, in a piece that was picked up all over the place, uh, says uh, the lead or somewhere close to it, violent school board meetings and threats toward school board members in Minnesota over these issues have caused dozens of board leaders to quit their positions. Okay. Violent school board meetings and threats have caused caused dozens of people to leave. And I'm like, huh. God, you think I would have heard about all those, you know, all the dozens of violent school board meetings in Minnesota? I went looking. There was one, uh, as far as I could tell, exactly one incident in the entire state of Minnesota. It was not directed at a school board. It was two parents who got pissed off at each other, had a brief shoving match, broken up very quickly by cops, and one guy was led away. Um, and this is portrayed as like this is wave of violence that's coming over uh, people when they are confronted with those outside of their class and tribe um, who look and act and, and and respond to things much differently than them. They are treated like uh, like brown shirts ready to go. Um, constant invocations of uh, January 6th. There was a, uh, uh, a big NPR thing uh, separate from the Minnesota Public Radio thing in conversations with NPR. Several school board members refer to these as these meaning um, when parents come up and they're pissed off about mask policies and other related policies, including critical race theory stuff, refer to these as mini insurrections or mini January 6ths. <laughs> All right. It's an insurrection of the mind. <laughs> it's, no, it's actually just parents who are showing up and pissed off. And there's another piece in the Washington Post. Philip Bump uh, basically said uh, that this is um, Fox News helped amplify, if not create, a furor at school board meetings several months ago. Um, it's like, dude, there's I live in in New York, right? There's. 12 Republicans here and they all live in Bay Ridge and they're all cops. Um, they're generally not the people who are going to school board meetings, yet there's a lot of people who've been going to them and upending policies. There's three school board members in the San Francisco Unified School District, not a Fox News heavy town last time I looked, uh, but who are facing impeachment because parents during the pandemic are pissed off, especially about blue state policies about shutting down schools. And then in that process, they're noticing all the curriculum and everything around them. And it's just equity this desegregation that nonstop and it's not it's not that it's critical race theory which doesn't always get taught or whatever it's a and then media spends the entire time yeah. sort of like uh, hair splitting on that issue but it is such a dominant part of the discourse and communication from schools that parents are like what the hell has been going on over here and they express outrage at it for which they're treated like lepers you occasionally and and if people think that this stuff isn't real and now we've taken a, a kind of middle path in this podcast particularly camille on these issues, um, you know, if you think this stuff isn't real at all and it's just some sort of fever dream that all these people are collectively enjoying, all one has to do is ask 
Matt Welch, who is on this podcast right now, you can ask him, uh, when he's decolonizing his inbox and sending <laughs> stuff to me, it is like uh, the public school stuff. I was like, good Lord, that is insane. Is that the Sandinista, the local, you know, Sandinista school? It's totally bizarre. I went to a school board meeting in Collier County, Florida, and there was a bit of a disruption in the meeting. Um, it was handled expertly by the police. Um, the people that were there causing this disruption were there to stage a disruption. Uh, that was the, the purpose. And I think the person who did actually didn't even have kids in the school district. And it was a kind of tea party hangover, right? These are people, kind of political people, older people. Everybody's like older, more than 65 in this particular one. Um, it doesn't mean that parents don't object to this stuff. But there is an element of this, and that is true. And of course, these people make it quite easy for the critics um, that say, oh, it's just a Fox News kind of thing. But, by the way, you cannot, Fox News cannot whip up these sorts of things. It, it, that's not how it works. You just kind of go on, you know, ad infinitum on, you know, Sean Hannity's dumb show and everyone just starts showing up at school board meetings. They do have to have something to protest. Now, the one that I was at, they were kind of inventing it, right? They were like, it's, uh, we're worried about this and they couldn't really find specific examples. So there is a huge element of that, of people being reactionary. But let's be honest and say that just because there are people that want to get on board and they want an issue, and there are a lot of those, that it doesn't exist. I mean, that's, it's just not, it's just not true. And if you were to have, by the way, emails that you get, Matt, if you were to take those and put them in a place that's, you know, not super progressive like Brooklyn, and it's the exact opposite of that, and there is a school uh, district sending the right wing version of that. Very, very kind of, you know, weird, kind of fringy right stuff. It would be on the front front cover of the New York Times. People would just be like, even if it was one school district, they'd be like, this is insane. Reacting the, to every news event with the most uncharitable possible uh, explanation, yeah. like the massage parlor shootings in Atlanta, for example. <laughs> you know, like exactly. like, we're so sorry about all the anti-Asian racism all around us, right? And, and you know, I, I, I've pointed this out before, and I think it's always a great example, is that I go into um, the bookstore close to where I live in the kids section is, is so insanely political that I, it's like almost comic. I mean, just like unbelievable for kids, you know, you know, the anti-racist baby and stuff like that, the Ibram X candy kids book, but they're also, everything is uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg. I mean, when I was a kid, it was like, I mean, I bought a satchel page book one time and I was like, oh, it looks interesting, but this is all very, very political stuff. And I always reminds me of this moment in the two thousands when there was a book that came out called, Help mom, there's liberals under the bed. Right. Now, I imagine this is the dumbest fucking thing you've ever seen in your life, and it should be scorned, and people should say this is stupid. But there was a bit like, I cannot believe this was book that's come out that's trying to politicize these kids into being mini and coulters. And now, no one really pays attention to this stuff. If it comes from one direction, it's fine. I just, I'm kind of opposed to proselytizing to kids and, and making them little mini political animals, regardless of the ideology. I, I think uh, that's... Is that, what is it no, like? I think, are, you, um, are you seeing this I stuff? I think that's yeah. exactly the point. So, like, over the past year, um, most part in, in, in Nova, the schools were closed. They were doing remote learning. Fairfax, which is one of the richest school districts in Virginia and probably the whole United States, like, the country, they did, yeah. they did, like, a day of remote learning when COVID first started, and then their, like, whole system screwed up, and then, like, they didn't, they didn't have school for, like, days and days after that because they couldn't even figure out the system, right? Like, it was, it was a real disaster. And so recently, uh, a couple of months ago or a month ago, they released um, the S what are called the SOL pass rates, uh, which are like SOLs are like standards of learning. So they're like standard tests that um, they those learn those standards create standardized tests uh, for Virginia. And the, 
what they found was that the pass rates for Arlington's kids, um, it declined by 21 points in math and five points in reading. And it was even worse among like minority students. It was like a 35 point drop among Hispanic students, a 30 point drop among black students in math. Like that's the heart of what's happening in education is like, there's so many districts where so where a lot of the students can't read on grade level, they can't do math on ba- on grade level. And so when we start seeing people saying, well, we need to like start teaching these kids that like, you know, individuality is whiteness and objectivity is problematic, blah, blah, blah. I think a lot of that just comes across as like them making up excuses for their failings and what's happening here, right? Because what school really is intended to do is just to teach kids like how to think the practical skills and knowledge and understanding so they can like make their way out in the world, right? It's not necessarily to indoctrinate them into one kind of political ideology or to turn them into activists. But I feel like that's almost like the new fad, right? Like that's the the people who run the education system in a lot to a large extent, they're like kind of giving up on like closing things like educational gaps and to be fair to them, I don't think it's entirely due to school factors or like outside of school factors that drive a lot of that. Um, but they're shifting, I think, in a lot of this equity focus uh, to doing a lot of this political indoctrination just because it, it seems like it's something that can fill the space of all their feelings and all the other directions. And I think the school closings were really the thing that really started driving a lot of these parents to these meetings is that a lot of them were really, really frustrated that they really couldn't get a quality education. Yeah. I mean, you had kids sitting outside libraries to get the free Wi-Fi to do the remote learning. I mean, you can't have an education in that circumstance, right? And I think a lot of that rolled over into some of this other stuff, like, you know, the CRT stuff, some of the transgender policies in Loudoun, and so on and so forth. But this has been building for a while, long before it became a national thing. And I think the thing that really touched it off was that the National School Board Association sent that letter to the federal government where they they claimed there were all this violence and threats. And they even asked the government to, like, set up an anti-terrorism task force to invoke the Patriot Act. I went through their list of. Which they have. I went through their list of cases. <laughs> Works so well. No, the they, last oh, let's hear this because I, I was starting to do this uh, today no, I as went well. Th- so so the, the letter from the National School Board Association uh, basically had a bunch of hyperlinks to local news stories. So I went and read these stories. I'm like, well, what are these threats? What are these violence? I haven't heard about it. For the most part, it's just like people yelling at town halls, right? And I think of the cases I went through, I think maybe there were two acts of like actual violence. And it was mostly like people shoving each other, one guy resisting police as they were dragging him out or like pulling him out or something. And like, and I'm thinking, look, I served on my city's youth council when I was growing up. I went to town hall meetings. Town hall meetings kind of serve that purpose, right? It's like everyone who has an axe to grind in the town is going to show up and like yell or be cranky. Um, usually there's cops on hand or you can call them to handle if there's any problem. I don't see any reason that the DHS and the FBI and the DOJ have to get involved because there's some cranky parents that come to these things, right? Um, and yet the federal government didn't tell these people to F off. They actually like set up a task force. Um I don't know what the task force is going to do because none of this, most of the stuff they're complaining about isn't even illegal, let alone terrorism or or violence. Um, But I think it does kind of suggest that the Democrats actually like having this narrative, just like they liked having the narrative against the Tea Party because it can can delegitimize a lot of their political opponents. And that to me is as, that to me is more problematic than maybe some parents showing up and being cranky or yelling. I mean, that can be a problem. But I don't see how it's such a problem that, you know, a local police officer can't handle it at, at worst. So which which uh, the ones that I've looked at, that's basically what happened. The local police officer handled the very, you know, temporary skirmish and went off. But this is galvanized. Right? This has absolutely made the Virginia gubernatorial race in play. It's not supposed to be a place where uh, Republicans win statewide offices anymore. The Not much in the Senate, not much uh, in the governor's race. And it's close. And this is the issue, right? I mean, uh, that's at least had the perception uh, looking out is that that's what's really galvanizing. Yeah, the, the national. So the, when the National School Board Association sent this letter, 
it created a lot of, I think, outrage at the local level. And actually, several uh, state school board associations decided to leave the National School Board Association because they were just there was so much outrage at the local level. They're, they felt really uncomfortable being associated with it. I believe the Virginia School Board Association wrote to the National School Board Association and was like, you didn't even consult us before sending this letter. What are you talking about? Didn't they, didn't they retract part yeah, of it? And then they, yeah, yeah, they, they wrote an apology. Apolo- yeah, they, they actually wrote a formal apology, mm-hmm. although the federal government hasn't disbanded the task force. And that's what all the senators were mad at Garland about. They were asking him, like, what are you, what are you even going to do, do with this task force? Like, are you just going to, like, sick them on parents who are just, like, mad at a school board uh, meeting? And I think, yeah, it has it has actually galvanized um, the Republicans in Virginia, because what happened was Terry McAuliffe and Glenn Youngkin, who's the gubernatorial candidate for the Republicans, got in an argument about these matters in a debate. And Mc- I don't know if McAuliffe meant to say it this way, but he said basically he said something like parents shouldn't be telling uh, schools what to teach. Um, almost verbatim, that was the quote. It was very close to that. And basically, Youngkin turned that into an ad, uh, aired it everywhere, got it online. And I think this actually did um, result in a surge in the polls. And now they're about... They're about even. They're about neck and neck. And it's it's really crazy because it shifted the entire debate to education. Because before that, um, McAuliffe's tact was basically two things. One, he was trying to betray Youngkin as like a, you know, a vulture capitalist. This was a guy who was like an executive in the Carlisle Group. You know, he's, he's he has a lot of money. I think his net worth is probably in the hundreds of millions. Um, that That wasn't really catching on. It wasn't really the mood of the electorate. And the second thing is to invoke Trump over and over. I mean, I think McAuliffe probably compares Youngkin to Trump dozens of times a day, which is really ironic because everybody knows, everybody in Virginia knows that Youngkin does not want to be associated with Trump. He hasn't invited him to campaign for him. He doesn't talk like him. He doesn't invoke any of his, like, you know, uh, personality characteristics or use any of his tropes or slogans or attitudes. Um, but he's tried really, really hard to associate And Trump's with numbers in Virginia amongst independents are underwater. I mean, it's incredibly negative if you look yeah. at polling. And, you know, it's, it's, it's interesting to see that, that gap close. And, you know, go from what, you know, eight points, five points, two points to sort of a, a dead heat now. Zed, I want to ask you a question about this, though, because, you know, our, our listeners are a very clever bunch. And there's this kind of universal quality to talking about schools. When it comes to talking about the gubernatorial race in Virginia, why do we care? Why is this getting so much attention for the people who don't live in, breathe this stuff all the time? You know, this is the governor of Virginia. I mean, good Lord, why do we care so much? And why is it taking up so much? Well, I think there's two reasons. One, I think political media has been a little bit lost since last year's election. There's no races or anything going on. So this is, and And a lot of them live in Virginia. (laughs) I think that honestly, like, I think that's part of the story for why, like, we haven't quite discussed like the case in Loudoun County that became such a huge thing, but it's the richest county in Virginia. It's a DC suburb. And basically what happened was like, there was a, um, a girl who was sexually assaulted in, in the, in, in one of the schools. Her dad shows up at a school board meeting over the summer. He's really angry. They basically don't let him really get get his anger off his chest. He gets arrested and thrown out. Uh, all the news media write-ups of this are like crazy dad shows up and he just yells at, you know, just nut, nut, nut case. Daily Wire broke the story about this is actually why he was there because his, his daughter got assaulted and this has been shown in court like it's a true story. Um, this really, really angered a lot of Republicans at the Virginia level. And I think it angered a lot of people nationwide because they saw this as emblematic of what's kind of happening, right? Which is that their people are being portrayed as just a bunch of lunatics. Their concerns aren't being taken yep. seriously. Uh, the guy himself, actually, Scott, uh, Mr. Smith, he is a plumber, too. He's a plumber in the richest county in Virginia, you know, a county full of, like, defense contractors and lobbyists and, like, bigwigs. 
Um, so I think there's also like a little bit of a class angle there, right? Like these like highly educated yeah. rich Democrats are looking down upon us, even when our daughters get like, you know, brutally attacked this way. They won't even let us speak and they uh, yeah. blah, blah, blah. But particularly on an issue like this where, you know, we've gone from believe women to kind of forget about it. And, you know, also to point out that I think the kid was convicted today. Is that, isn't that what I, I, I read? Something yeah, I think it's um, working its way through the court so, right now as we speak, like it's been happening this week. Um uh, yeah, it's a it's a real it's a very tragic story, and but I think yeah, part of it is, is political media people. But there was bored. some politicizing of this in a in a kind of transgender yeah. uh, debate way that seems to be maybe not entirely true or ha- as yeah, it was originally the, the thing reported. Is, um, I haven't followed that quote. A lot closely. of the details of this story are not going to be out there because it's their minors involved, right? So I think it's kind of hard yeah. to get them. And yeah, I do think a lot of it was initially interpreted as. So this county was debating the policy of like bathrooms, like should they be gender neutral or not. And I think some conservatives also looked at this as like, well, maybe they didn't want to talk about this issue because, uh, you know, they think that a gender neutral bathroom would make it easier for, for boys to go into to girls' bathrooms. And so maybe that's why Loudoun County didn't want to talk about it because they were trying to defend their transgender policy. You know, another reason they wouldn't want to talk about it just because these are these are really rich people who are all D.C. like, you know, PR professional type folks. And they just they don't want to harm the reputation of their county and admit that this kind of stuff happened in one of their schools. Right. Um, I think that probably motivated to even more than wokeness does, right? It's just like rich guys who want to uh, maintain the reputation and integrity and public image of their schools. And that's why they weren't upfront about what happened. Um, but yeah, you're right. I think it was politicized in, in terms of the transgender stuff, too, which honestly, that seems to jump into everything now. Like Dave Chappelle's, you know, in the middle of all that, like somehow everything becomes a transgender issue at the end of it. I don't know how this has happened, but. We have done a very good job as a podcast of basically not talking about that, haven't we? Yeah, we. I mean, do we? I think on a on a Patreon episode, which this is a reminder to everyone that we have uh, Patreon yes. episodes that drop about once a week. If oh, you can hear Matt be very transphobic on those. Yes, you know, it's a, very. It's oh God, really, really thrilling uh, yeah. to hear. Um, Dave that, Chappelle told you it was a bit much. It was like, you got to <laughs> calm down there. <laughs> he goes hard in the paint, but that was kind of a bit much for him. But uh, no, uh, speaking of the uh, of the trans stuff, right? So NPR does a, a piece uh, pegged to the nationwide pro- uh, protests. I flagged this on Twitter yesterday and got into a little thing with Dave Weigel, uh, former uh, fifth column guest and former employee of mine. Uh, I was at the Washington Post now, but uh, this is how they put it. Protesters are mobilizing against masks, vaccines, LGBTQ rights. Removing police from schools and diversity, equity, inclusion and inclusion initiatives um, is the claim. There wasn't anything in the entire article um, talking about said LGBTQ rights. Uh, it's just sort of dropped there as like, of, of course, that's what's happening. And I just pointed out as a as a normal thing about journalism is like, well, you'd think you might throw in a hyperlink or just like an example of something like that. Weigel came back to me. It's like, well, there's a lot of people who are upset about, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, uh uh, boys who are transitioned to girls now wanting to comp- compete in girls athletics. I was thinking about that for a second. Um, even if that's the generous read of this, it's still bad journalism. But if that's what the referent is, are we calling that rights now? It's yeah. like we went from from like zero to this. This happens sometimes to this is rights. The, and you're being the, anti the those New York rights, Times but- a few weeks ago when they were reporting on the Virginia governor's race saying it's all culture war. They were saying that the Republicans are mad about, I'm trying to remember what the phrase they use. It was like public health initiatives or something. But basically, it was like masking toddlers in schools, right? And it's like, you're just declaring this as like, this is the public health initiative. Like, this is this is how you protect toddlers. Like, there's no debate about it, right? Like, it's just like, it's common yeah, sense. It's, it's like being against seatbelts now. And it's like, 
Yeah, I think that when the media reports things that way, you can kind of tell like their their editorial voice is speaking through the reporting, right? And it does make it difficult, I think, just to tell what's going on sometimes. Like it's totally fine. People have points of view. I have points of view, but like sometimes you just you won't even be able to understand what the grievance is about or like what the other side even thinks. Because there's so much editorial voice yeah. bleeding through what they're writing. You know, if anyone has any doubt about the political direction of the media, and I've always been one that, you know, criticizes individuals in the media and examples of things, but hasn't really cared. I don't really care so much. I mean, the New York Times does some very good stuff. Uh, the, the Washington Post did a very good uh, piece about the Loudoun County sexual assault case. And, you know, we're better for it. I don't, I'm not one of those Brent Bozell types. It, the weird thing about it recently is the kind of unilateral changing of language and definitions. So that's what you can always tell. Like, you know, f- before the pandemic, no one had ever heard the word BIPOC before, the acronym BIPOC. And then it was everywhere, right? You know, we find out that 3% of uh, Hispanic Latino people use the word Latinx, and I think 6% knew what it was. But yet it's universal, Right. And this is, they've just decided there's no, there's no committee. It's just decided. And when you say this thing about rights, Matt, I pointed this out to you. And this is, you know, gonna, people maybe arch an eyebrow at this, but it was the, the Huma Abedin, um, story. And it was a terrible story, right? It's a story that she's got a book coming out. I mean, the woman's had a hard enough life. <laughs> this is Hillary, she's married to. Hillary Clinton's uh, right hand man for a thousand years and also yeah. Anthony Weiner's wife. Yes, a poor woman. Tough. And so she, in the book, details that a senator, and she doesn't name the senator, which I think is a bit curious, um, tried to kiss her, right? And in the book, uh, according to the news report I read, uh, it says that she, you know, uh, recoiled. And they always say, shove the tongue down the throat, but it's always that phrase. And she recoiled, and the guy said, I misread these signals, right? Okay. This is the headline of the story that I read is uh, in the BBC, and this is repeated everywhere. Huma Abedin, Clinton aide details sex assault by U.S. Senator. Now, my friends, ladies and gentlemen, am I going on a limb here to say that sex assault um, a, is somebody who really misread a signal or is a bit aggressive? Look, the guy sounds like a scumbag. You know, I, I would, you know, name him and shame him. Um, but sex assault seems a bit over the top, Right. I mean, that's that, astonishing to me that that was what it's called. And maybe I've just blinked and we've redefined yet another word. It doesn't seem like an assault. It seems like a sleazy guy doing something sleazy, but when told that he was being sleazy, backed off, right? Doesn't make it okay. But, you know, this is the thing that it's kind of everywhere I look, I actually have to de- dig deeper. It's a good thing into stories to figure out if the words being used are being used in the way that I used to know them. And now it's a bit, it's a bit different. Um, you know, um, for instance, we just, we just heard uh, Jeff Tubin um, and it talk about white supremacy. Now, when I was growing up, white supremacists were someone who believed in the supremacy of the white race and were quite vocal about it, right? Maybe this is subterranean white supremacy or something. But I've said this before, you know, if these are white supremacists at these uh, Loudoun, County meetings or, you know, people who are objecting to CRT and, you know, I disagree with them in a lot of things and agree on some things. If these are white supremacists, I don't know what to call white supremacists. We have to have a separate word for them now because they're, you know, they're really bad. I'm just going to say the really, really bad white supremacists, you know, like the Hitler ones, not the, you know, the regular white supremacists. So the, the kind of shifting of language and how easy it's done and how we kind of surrender to it so quickly because, you know, it's best not to you know, be offended or offend somebody. So you err on the side of caution. So you say Latinx until you say it to a, a Hispanic person that says, what are you talking about? 
<laughs> like, I've never of, heard that before. Uh, a lot of what uh, I like the best about uh, your uh, writing and observations, Zed, is, uh, is precisely that. Like the gap between the way progressive uh, journalism and slash Twitter um, deals with some of these issues. And then you kind of do a real world gut check of the actual attitudes of immigrants in particular. You're the child of immigrants, right? You're not an immigrant yourself. Um uh, and, uh, you know, my wife is uh, immigrants, not uh, uh, not from a historically downtrodden country, to be sure. But uh, but like immigrants have you can make the argument that it's a shithole country. Well, I mean, that's different. That's a separate <laughs> issue. She's loyal listeners. So we're going to be really nice about yeah. their uh, fighting. I just want to say that is from uh, his parents are from a, a Muslim country and your uh, wife is from an anti-Muslim country. So just <laughs> wait, 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 uh, all the Muslims. French. French. Okay. She's French. Well, <laughs> with all the Muslims, yeah. come on now. Uh, but uh, any, anywho, uh, like to to hear more from you about that sort of that gap between the expectations uh, and the use of language and the kind of ventriloquism even for various communities, and then just how those things land on the actual communities themselves as they live, even just in an American context. Yeah, I mean it's it's a good question because I feel like journalism is at its best when it's like holding up like a mirror to the world like it's it's helping you step in other people's shoes and kind of experience things as as they would or understand their perspective and i think it it just can be very very difficult sometimes to do that when you're insisting on defining people in the way that they don't really define themselves or expressing their experiences or realities in a way that they nece- wouldn't necessarily be doing that like I just read a poll um from Texas actually about like the abortion law there right um Basically, uh, six weeks bound, you know, they're calling them bounties or so on and so forth. It's designed to, to basically suppress the number of abortions. In that poll, a higher number of Latino Texans agree with the law than white Texans agree with the law, right? And I would, you know, you think to yourself, like, when people are saying that we need to have more minority perspectives, they invent these new words as, as, as have been described by Pox, so on and so forth. I was thinking, well, if you needed to talk to a median Latino person, if you wanted to have a Latino voice from Texas, that person might just write a column or come on the television and tell you about how they don't think abortion is all that great and there should be more laws to restrict it, right? And I'm thinking that the people who generally demand more uh, minority presence in these different uh, arenas or outlets probably would object to that. Um, I think we've seen, there was a piece for, uh, was it Deadspin or something that was arguing that like Dave Chappelle and Kyrie Irving, who's a um, basketball player, um, that they're basically being pawns for white people or something like that. And it's like, yeah, they're tools for white supremacy, as is Condi Rice. Right. So. It's interesting because I think when we talk about diversity, what I fear about diversity is the idea of everyone looking different, but thinking the same. Right. Because then to me, you've taken all the like heart out of diversity. Like the, the way that diversity really works well is when you bring in like genuinely different perspectives uh, when you bring in generally different ways of thinking and cultures and experiences. And I think that by creating this dichotomy where they really do just want uh, a multicolor group of robots, you know, people who repeat the same slogans, chants, <laughs> have the exact same worldview, they're really destroying what I think is a very beautiful thing, right? Like, I remember I wrote up a study one time when I was in my fellowship at Berkeley showing that even like esports teams, like, you know, people who play video games, uh, that are composed of people from multiple countries tend to do better than people who are composed from like contestants from only one country, just because like having literally multicultural perspectives on how you play a video yeah. game, like make your team better. And I think research tends to show like businesses operate better. Um, 
government probably operates a little bit better when you have more of that diversity. But the only reason why is because the people involved are bringing in genuinely like different perspectives and cultures. And I do think when you're trying to sort everyone into like, there is this quote unquote BIPOC way of thinking in this BIPOC coalition and, you know, includes the Latinxes and include and, you know, uh, so on and so forth. You're really destroying what could be a very beautiful thing, which is having a country full of people who think in different ways and, you know, disagree with each other. But um, put together, we're much stronger for it. We're not necessarily stronger if everyone's forced to think the same or describe the same way. And I think that the way, particularly the way that minorities are often presented in, like, I would say most of liberal media and much of mainstream media is generally as, like, you know, Democratic voters. Like, if you meet one who isn't a Democratic voter, I mean, right now, I've, I've seen an exit poll for Virginia showing that Latinos are, like, split almost, like, almost 50-50 on, like, Youngkin versus McAuliffe. If you're just presenting Latinos as, like, staunch Democrats and liberals, you're not really describing the reality of what's happening in Virginia. You're not really, the whole the whole picture isn't there, right? And to me, that's just, that's just fake. When you didn't learn the lesson of the 2020 right. election either, which, you know, saw that shift after 2016, after the rather harsh, <laughs> to put it mildly, rhetoric from Donald Trump about immigration, mm -hmm. because, you know, people don't even understand that first, second generation immigrants uh, sometimes are pull up the drawbridge immigrants. And if we flatten all quote unquote Hispanics, uh, you think that, you know, Mexicans have the same opinion of somebody from Honduras mm -hmm. as they do of somebody from Ecuador, et cetera. And there is some complexity there. And, you know, I think it, I think it underscores how political the whole project is because is that you're a, a BIPOC yeah. person until you say the wrong thing, right? I mean, that's why we have you on because we lost the BIPOC tonight. <laughs> so we needed a new one. Matt said, I got one. Um, I'd never heard of you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, you know, it's, weird name it's has a Z. Let's get <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, you know, I think John, you reviewed John uh, McWhorter's mm -hmm. book and I just, I just started uh, thumbing through it. And, you know, he mentions the woman from the New York Times who was a food writer who was uh, basically run out of town and suspended for criticizing, daring to criticize two people that were BIPOC. And that is a two fabulously wealthy mm. people, one who is half white, half Thai, uh, and I, the one that's married to John Legend, I can't remember her name. I, uh, I Chrissy, from my mind. Chrissy, uh, Tegan, Chrissy Teigen. Yes. That's the one. Yeah. And then uh, Marie Kondo, who is Japanese. I, and I they're don't both even. Like I don't billionaires. Even understand. This is like it strikes me as like some kind of racist aristocracy or something. Like what? What is going on? Like I don't know. I'm thinking about how I like. I grew up outside of Atlanta and Georgia growing up. I had friends from like you know Nigeria, India, and African American friends. And you know I had. We were all just like argue with each other and talk with each other like we didn't have these weird rules where like if yeah. you're of a certain skin color you're allowed to agree with me or disagree with me like and that is yeah. really most people in america but they've created this like strange caste system in their minds and they're trying to export it they're trying to sure. export it to the rest of the world uh basically through domination and media platforms and and to some extent in government um and yeah like if you just presented people as like normal the median person thinks about the, the way these things go i feel like we could dissolve a lot of this but like they're actively pushing it on the population and trying to like at least inculcate a generation of people to think this way. And yeah, I, I'm it very it is kind of scary to me. And I think part of the reason it's scary to me is because I am the kid of immigrants. So like I know a lot about the rest of the world because um I spent a lot of time traveling, seeing family in other parts of the world, talking to people who are in immigrant communities. And the really the thing about America that's very lucky is that we have very low levels of tribalism here. Like overall, right? Like if you like 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 apple pie and you like you like baseball, like you're an American, basically, like more or less, right? Like right now, literally in India, they arrested people in Kashmir who like 
who like celebrated the Pakistani win in the cricket match because they think they're disloyal, right? Mm -hmm. Like if you're an Indian, even if you're Indian Mm -hmm. Muslim, you have to like hate Pakistan. Like that has to be a core part of your identity. You have to be part of this like sectarian conflict for the rest of your life. Uh, You shouldn't be marrying anyone from Pakistan. You shouldn't be friends with them. Uh, Those people did all these atrocities to us. They can, I've, I've seen examples of people listing all these atrocities as if, you know, every Pakistani was involved in these things. That's the way so many people in the world think. The idea that you can actually like think of someone's cultural characteristics as compartmentalized, like it's maybe it's a cool, funny or interesting thing, but it doesn't necessarily define them. And it certainly doesn't mean that you're divided from them and can't bridge any differences with them. That's a fairly unique idea in America, in human history. And America's more, more or less got it. like I, mean, I would say America and Canada, yeah. to some extent, the UK or, um, you know, some parts of basically the Western world have kind of reached that point. And I feel like these people are all trying to drag it back. And it may it may sound silly that I'm being so apocalyptic about someone like arguing over what was it like recipes or something? Like, I don't even understand what the argument yeah. was about. Yeah. yeah but if you that. extend she, that, she's, yeah, she's there were sellers. If you extend that thinking out to other parts of society, though, you will eventually get like a civil war or something. Like, it's really, really bad stuff. And so, however way, whatever way we have to diffuse that, whether it's by being serious yeah. or just making fun of it until people stop doing it. Uh, I think we should do it. <laughs> yeah, I, I, I used to point out on this podcast all the time, um, it was my favorite genre, and, and it, they loved it in the Daily Mail, by the way, where there would be a fight, a conflict, something in which the two protagonists were uh, of different races, be white, you know, uh, white guy does this, attacks this guy, uh, black guy does this, attacks guy. And you read the story and it has nothing to do with race. They've just injected it into the headline because, you know, if you take a swing at somebody, make sure it's a white guy if you're white, if a black guy if you're black, et cetera, you know, keep as racial experience exclusionary fighting but to to your point about the kind of tribalism of the world and how we've kind of gotten beyond it in some sense and never had it in other senses and there's i think there's a lot of historical reasons for that of i mean new york city in 1880 1920 these are people living cheek to jowl from all sorts of different countries and communities and that's a that's a healthy helpful thing but the amazing thing about what's happening now is that we're trying to produce what happens in mm-hmm. India uh, vis-a-vis Pakistan and, you know, any, every other culture, yeah. Balkans, et cetera. But those are often organic, right. right? They come from tribal affiliations over years and years and years. And it gets violent, it gets stupid, it gets racist, et cetera. We are trying to do this from the top down because I, it's funny. I remember I went into a, a factory that was closing down in Indiana and doing a story there. And we went out to drink at the bar uh, afterwards where all the union guys hung out and um went in there and, by the way I had the greatest time <laughs> it was like such a fun night and you know just sat there drinking beers with all these guys and i've said this before and i'll say it again i had somebody on my crew say to me swear to god this is honest to goodness truth said wow this bar is like more integrated than any of the bars that I go to in Brooklyn. And I was like, yeah, no shit. <laughs> this is like all these people work in the factory together. They all like each other. Some of them, you know, the black people and the Hispanic people that I talked to were voting for Trump because Sanders was, was this is 2016 because uh, Sanders was gone and they wouldn't vote for Hillary Clinton because of her, her trade policies, et cetera. And I was like, you know, this is a truly interesting uh, group of people that nobody in New York believes mm. exists. They believe this is a sort of unicorn that you find and write a story about, but it's not really representative. And, you know, look, it, it's not represented in the sense that, you know, black Americans are voting Democrats and for, for Democrats. And I saw a, a chart today of, I think it was Nevada, the share of the African-American vote uh, amongst Democrats. And it had gone from like 98% down to 87% it was going down every year. And, you know, it was a hammerlock is going to be mm. broken. I don't think if people believe 
that if California were to become 70% Hispanic, right, that conservatism would disappear. Or if the country became 70% Hispanic, the Republicans would disappear. It would just be a one-party state because, you know, they're BIPOCs and everybody loves, mm. you know, the same ideology when they're BIPOCs. It is unbelievably stupid and reductionist. And it's always amazing to me to see otherwise smart people who went to very, very prestigious universities making these simplistic, stupid arguments. I mean, it may be like what you were what you were describing in that people... It may not necessarily be that they believe it, but they think they can will it into existence, right? Like they they think. It's true, yeah. I'm not a huge expert on the Balkans. Like I, yeah, you know, I had like a roommate who was from Bosnia. I studied a little bit in school, but from what I understand, like a lot of what like Milosevic and this nationalists were doing were like they were trying to engineer something, right? Like there was there were a lot of Bosnians uh, Muslims who were married to the Serbians. Uh, my roommate actually came from a mixed marriage. Uh, his mom and dad. Um, but he activated a certain kind of consciousness in people to where it just kind of was actually willed into existence. Like it would have been seen as kind of absurd at one point to be like, we're going to actually going to fight each other just 10 years prior to that. Right. That's both true. But he had this big historical cabinet mm -hmm. <laughs> behind him. It's like, hey, do you remember this from 1944? Do you remember the Ustashi? Mm -hmm. Do you remember, you know, this thing happened in 1388? So, yeah, you're right. It, it was like whipped up. And like a lot of people in that region who uh, transition from communism to post-communism, they're like, oh, nationalism is, is the way to go. Uh, and so a lot of that stuff was whipped up. And a lot of those mixed couples just left. I mean, that that mm. uh, Yugoslavia lost so many hundreds of thousands of people, uh, especially those of mixed marriage who like flooded Canada, U.S., uh, and all of Central Europe. Uh, so, yeah, it can it can be both. But it, it, without the without the backstory – that would have been a lot more difficult mm. to do. And we don't really have, I mean, we do have a, a similar, we do have backstories along these lines, but uh, they tend, I think, to kind of just dissolve in the, in, you know, the, the, the melting pot analogy insert here. Um, what, what is distressing is that um, there isn't, uh, even the, the term melting pot, you can just like cringe, you know, in anticipation of everyone on the right and left. I mean, it's not an accident that Viktor Orban is, you know, having d demographic summits mm. in Budapest. <laughs> yeah. And Mike Pence shows up to the Mike Pence. Budapest demographic summit. Um, a friend of mine in Budapest texted me and said, Mike Pence is here at, uh, she, she's Hungarian, at a demographic, demographic uh, summit. And my only response was that absolutely does not sound racist <laughs> just, nope. at all. I just doesn't sound to me racist at really? all. Demographic. He's summit. interested in census <laughs> survey strategies. Like what's sure. the best way to do it? So well, this best way to get census. Yeah. That's not really uh, what's happening there, but it's funny that, that all of the, uh, you know, you mentioned Matt, a headline that, that uh, EJ Dion jackboots and, you know, white nationalist tonight from, from uh, Jeff Tubin in the constant invocation of Nazi Germany and fascism, et cetera. And it's funny because you realize how shallow and stupid the, the press is generally, because there are lessons to be learned from this, right? I mean, particularly when it comes to dividing people. I made this, again, this comment, this is a Patreon comment, that I got a really angry email about some, from somebody, and I actually wrote them back with some source material. But it was a quote from, I think, George Mossy, the uh, historian at University of Wisconsin-Madison who passed away a couple of years ago, who said, you know, if at the beginning of the 20th century, you had said a country in Europe is going to be consumed by genocidal anti-Semitism, they would say, God damn those French uh, after the Dreyfus Fair, et cetera. How that developed and anti-Semitism became genocidal in Germany of all places, not of all places, it was anti-Semitic, but that's interesting, right? 
People don't look at that. People have no interest in that. Uh, the guy who wrote a book about this, and I'm trying to remember who it was, about free speech, and it was a point that I'd been making a long time, hate speech in Weimar Republic, there were lots of hate speech laws. It did not stop the Nazis. As a matter of fact, Joseph Goebbels was prosecuted a number of times for hate speech violence. There's a lot of examples in this history that we can actually draw on from today, but instead it is merely a charge that we throw at people and uh, hope it sticks like napalm. But, you know. I'd like to ask, uh, Zed, uh, sort of a, a, a two-sided question that kind of gets to this. One is that, uh, is it possible that in the same way that Dave Chappelle says Twitter ain't real life, man, um, so fuck Twitter, um, is it possible that we're getting to a point where the media ain't real life, man, so fuck the media, or at least read it with some kind of sophistication, but let's not exaggerate the reach, because as soon as you go to Indiana and start drinking with Michael Moynihan's union... <laughs> uh, anti-Semites at a factory somewhere. Yeah. Um, then it's it, the one thing they all agree on. Yeah. The Jews. <laughs> Who's doing trade? All right. That's, you know, come on. Um, but like, no, like it's that the world that people are arguing over is it's uh, it's a turf war on shrinking turf. Mm. And part of the... Even that word means something different now, Matt. That's just true. <laughs> Whoops. Uh, it's a turf war. I, I think about that sometimes in terms of, of like uh, the uh, school board wars just where I live, because I had to take a part of them. Like, there's something like almost deliberately alienating about the language. Like, they want you to leave, right? If, if it's a smaller field, if there's, uh, there's fewer people out there objecting, because they're just like, ah, screw it. Enough. I, I don't want to... I don't want to have to hear this same speech for the 75th time. Um, then they get to have kind of uh, more control over it. But that's a, a long term structural problem for them as well, because the thing that they you know, the, the platform that they tried to gatekeep so well, like is now reduced to nothingness. Then everyone's going to Zedjilani Substack and having a great old time there. And meanwhile, the country does not descend. Inquiremore.com, yeah. by the way. Um, I so mean, like, it's uh, a, like, it's a uh, really good question. We're, we're worried, but like, but maybe, maybe our own worry is exaggerated just yeah. because we work and we swim in these waters. No, it's a really good question. Obviously we have an unhealthy amount of media consumption, much more so than the average American, um, which is actually kind of a, a ray of hope that like, you know, if you did nothing but like look at Twitter and cable news every night, you would think America was like in an actual civil war. Right. And it's not right. Like a lot of people are just like chilling out. Um, one hand's. Uh, anecdote from Indiana could be a Waffle House in Georgia. You, you'd see people with Black Lives Matter mm -hmm. t-shirts and rebel, you know, Confederate flags in the same booth joking with each other. Like, that's actually a situation you'll see because Southerners actually get along a lot better than the stereotypes about them are. But at the same time, so I wrote a post actually on Inquirer. It was called, like, Why is Everything Suddenly Racist? And what I did is I looked at a study by David Risotto and uh, Musa Garbi, who's a really smart guy on Twitter. I, I recommend people follow him. Um, I think he's at Columbia now, or he's on the academic job market, maybe. Basically, what they did is they looked at prejudice denoting words. So, like, racist, sexist, homophobic, xenophobia, Islamophobic. What they found was an enormous increase in the use of those words in the media over the past decade. Um, in some cases, it was, like, you know, maybe hundreds of percentages or something like that, right? And they did, it wasn't a causal study, so they didn't really look at, like, what the impact of that was, and they didn't claim to know what the impact of that was. But if you look at, like, Gallup... Gallup did a poll, and Americans' views of black-white relations has fallen to a two-decade low, like their most recent poll, right? Um, I think only 40% of African Americans think that a solution will eventually be worked out with relations between, like, between blacks and whites. Um, this is, like, a substantial change in, like, American pessimism about just, like, our ability to get along. Even if we are getting along better than we actually think we are, 
I think creating that substantial, like, pessimistic mood is just, like, really demoralizing for Americans, if nothing else, right? And I do think that that is possibly one impact of just, like, the media tending to to go out to extremes and highlight them so much uh, and so consistently. Um, but, yeah, it is kind of a ray of sunshine that maybe people will just, like, you know, want to listen to Joe Rogan instead of watch CNN at night or something, right? Because yeah. Joe Rogan, if nothing else, is a very chill guy, right? Like, he's not encouraging you to go out and fight with someone or hate someone, um, which I think is to his credit. You know, before we transition to something even more depressing, and I want to get Zed to become a communist again, so we're going to talk about uh, what's going on in Washington. Before that, though, Matt, I think you're right, and the one thing that gives me pause in that is that if it were just people in the medium uh, and just us talking to each other, that'd be one thing. But when it, you know, when the media is amplifying, of course, the Dave Chappelle protest that was thousands of people that turned out to be dozens, or that, you know, people actually respond within Hollywood and media by, you know, taking Louis C.K.'s stuff off of, you know, HBO and memory holing it, or, you know, Amazon not streaming uh, Woody Allen movies or whatever it might be. There's all sorts of things that happen within, you know, the kind of culture in which we live in, you sort of LA, New York, but that actually filters out to the rest of the country. And, you know, the thing that's good about that in a way, and I encourage it in some way, because it does allow people to create alternate viewpoints and alternate media organizations and substacks and the rest of it. So we are responding to that. The people are shifting and responding and saying, you know what, I'm, I don't, it's going to make us more atomized and, and more partisan. Uh, that's a problem. But, you know, what does one expect? But speaking of crazy partisanship, Washington, D.C. right now, quite a place. <laughs> so you're across the river, and every single fucking time I turn on Radio Sandinista, um, uh, I'm sorry, WNYC, and say, what's, you know, what's going on? It, you know, it's a different thing, the reconciliation bill, sort of. Here's where we are now tonight. It seems as if the billionaire tax is now going down in flames. And the the lie seems to be that it's Joe Manchin, but it seems to be that a lot of other people are upset about this too. What is your take on this now in this uh, $80 bazillion uh, spending deals and the fact that we're not talking about Republicans at all? We're mm -hmm. talking about Manchin and cinema, and that's it. Uh, Republicans don't exist in this conversation. What is your take on this as uh, somebody who is at heart a Marxist? Yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm not, I probably, yeah. <laughs> it's not true. Yeah, but I'm not, not exactly it. a Marxist, but um, look, I, <laughs> but let me say sure, that. Sure, sure. <laughs> probably. It makes it, it makes maybe it more on interesting. this podcast I am, you're all right. Like if I, if I'm on Jackman podcast, I'm, I'm Gordon Gecko. but if I'm, all right. Um, yeah. <laughs> no, look, I think that, I think that it, look, that I think fundamentally a lot of this has to do with, when I was at CAP, when I was at Center for American Progress in 2009, right when the Obama administration was starting, the Democrats had like dozens of seat advantage in the House, right? And they had, at one point, they had, they mm -hmm. briefly had 60 seats in the Senate, which meant filibuster proof, right? Um, with that kind of margin, I think you can go for the mo more ambitious things, right? When you're right down to the wire, when you're 50-50 in the Senate, uh, when you have a very, very slim margin in the House... I don't think they can really afford to be as ambitious as they wanted to be. I mean, Bernie Sanders originally was talking about $6 trillion reconciliation bill, right? They brought it down to 3.5. Uh, they learned that they had problems, particularly with Mansion and Cinema, but really they don't even have, it's not just Mansion and Cinema. I think that Mansion and Cinema are just the most visible or most vocal uh, folks that have objections to things, and they can kind of take a lot of the heat because of the political climates they're in in West Virginia and Arizona. Um, I think if the Democrats 
wanted to have the ambitious agenda that could address things like paid leave, child tax credit, Medicare expansion, all these things at once, they needed to have those kind of margins that Obama had in 2009, right? Um, And it looks like the paid leave is off the table. Yeah, I mean, a lot is going to be off the table before it's done, if it gets done. They may just end up going for the infrastructure bill, and the reconciliation thing just keeps getting punted uh, down, down the road. I mean... You know, it's I, I think that a lot of people on the on the left, they think they can kind of just will these things into reality by just being like angry enough or, you know, you, you saw the confrontation with Kirsten Cinema in the bathroom at ASU. Um, but really, those things come from like large legislative majorities. And I just think with the slim margin that they have now, it's just very, very difficult to get these things through. And also, it's just like, I'm not so sure all of it's necessarily constructed in the best way because they're trying to hit a certain dollar limit, right? And that requires them doing all kinds of weird things with like what makes you eligible for childcare or for paid leave or cost sharing or means testing. Um, And, you know, it may not be worth doing a whole lot of things poorly versus doing a few things well. And that may end up being the more intelligent, like smarter way for them to approach this. One thing that uh, struck me last week, I think, uh, uh, Gallup came out with its monthly approval uh, numbers. Biden is down. And, you know, you don't pay too much attention to this stuff because there's better things to do with your life. Not only is Biden down from kind of an opening salvo of 57 percent, and now he's down to like 43 or 42 per Gallup, but this tracks with other um, things. But his uh, specific share among independents, which Gallup uh, defines very generously. It's like, basically, how do you self-describe? Do you affiliate with Republicans or Democrats or independents? And about 44% uh, or thereabouts say independents. It's uh, It's been the largest uh, response uh, number for the last eight years and, and much before. And his number among independents has gone from 61% approval to 34% in nine months. And uh, I went back and uh, read a piece that I wrote just after the election talking about the role of third parties and independent vote in the uh, 2020 election. And it really was as decisive as it gets. There's somebody who uh, uh, some uh, uh, a lefty who isn't smart, um, <laughs> unlike Zed, um, had a piece today like, you know, if you just did what the, you know, the 18 to 29 demographic was the most important demographic to get Biden the election. And now they're taking away whatever, you know, forgive all college loans things. Can you believe it? Well, no, that's not actually wasn't the decisive thing. The decisive thing was that you turned um, you know, 5.7% of the presidential vote in 2016 went to third party candidates. Only 1.8% did in 2020. Where do those people go? They all voted for Biden. They really all just voted for mm-hmm. Biden. Trump got a bigger share of the vote in 2020. We still haven't totally wrapped our brains around this fact, but it's true. He got more of the percentage of the popular vote. Um, but all of the independents literally went and voted for Biden because he wasn't Trump and they were sick of Trump. Trump was underwater. You were referencing uh, his uh, share among independents, Michael, earlier. Um, Like Trump uh, beat Hillary Clinton by one percentage point among independents, depending on who's measuring, but somewhere around there, uh, at least at parity. And then that was it. He was underwater the rest of his presidency because he acted like a jackass. And independents who are not like rallying to the president don't necessarily like that or didn't like some of his policies or whatever it was. Um, and so they picked up this tool. And so these people who helped deliver Biden the presidency um, they were probably I am guessing and I'm you know projecting a little bit, of course. But I don't think that they were responding to the letter 
of his policy proposals, which in fact were pretty left wing because the Democrats uh, economic and his uh, policies over time under the influence of Bernie Sanders has has moved to the left. So, but Biden within the field that he was running was a moderate, right? Like on paper, the stuff that he's proposing is more radical than many of the things that Barack Obama was, was proposing. True. But as like a category of human, the selling proposition of Joe Biden was not the do everything reconciliation bill, which he pointed out frequently. climate change, which he pointed out frequently. And so yeah. now he's surprised that the people who helped deliver his margin are like, what the, what are you doing? I think, I think also part like, of it is that he campaigned as kind of like, a steady hand on the wheel, right? Like he's going to be competent. It's going to be yeah. no nonsense. They're not going to push anything that big, but just going to kind of make politics boring again, right? And I'm not so sure that's what he actually delivered. I think as a as a person, like you know, in his profile as a politician through the years, he probably does kind of have that attitude. But now he leads a, a party or a coalition that's full of factions of people who don't really want that, right? Like they do actually want to push the envelope. Uh, they do want like much more radical cultural and social policy, like, you know, things like eliminating the Hyde Amendment, right? Like that had never been Biden's position before, but it's Biden's position now. Um, and he has to manage that. And it's very hard for him. He really doesn't push back on them all that much. I don't I don't think I think he largely goes along with it. And I think there's also just the reality that he's not really owning a lot of what's happening. Like, for instance, with the border, I don't know uh, if you guys discuss like um, the fact that he had spent months saying this is just like a seasonal increase of people. We see it every year. Now we know it's like enormous, enormous numbers of people are being intercepted at the border. We also have scenes of chaos, you know, people living under an underpass, so on and so forth. Um, I don't think that the administration owned that issue. And I don't think they're owning a lot of things like what's happening with inflation, what's happening um with the supply chain which was also supposed to be transitory and, and yeah like and they're brief. they're picking instead of instead of just being up front and like actually reasoning with people they're doing a lot of spin right and i think a lot of people yeah. who voted for biden are not like hardcore ideological leftists right they're not like okay finally someone who's going to pass the 3.5 trillion dollar package they're just like no this guy he's going to reason with us he's not going to be off the wall he's not going to be tweeting at 3 a.m and you know, instead, I think they're finding that their lives are actually getting a little bit worse in a number of directions, uh, including persistent COVID, yeah. including what's happening with the economy. And the guy just doesn't seem like he's really acknowledging it and owning it. And it seems like all his like flax and apparatchiks and all the people like standing for him are just spinning everything. And that's he doesn't he doesn't come across what? as a strong leader. Honestly, that's that's what some of the polling has shown. They show that most Americans think he's just a weak leader. Yeah, I mean, they also can't figure out who they want to be. I mean, there's, as Matt was pointing out, I mean, Joe Biden ran as, well, I am the Democratic Party, not uh, Bernie Sanders, which was actually more or less a direct quote after or during one of the debates. And so, you know, I'll be the steady hand. I'm not going to be the one that's going to go a bit crazy. And you see elements of that. And then you see the other bit where it's constantly sops to the progressive caucus who um, acts, I mean, look, at they do the thing that, you know, I recommend to people, you know, when you go, act like, you know, walk in like you, you know, big swinging thing and just, you know, act, that's what they've been doing and are noticing that they don't actually have the power that they think that they do. I think they're paying attention to the media so much, but they're actually straddling those two worlds because I mean, Joe Biden is saying nobody under $400,000 uh, we'll have a tax increase. Now, that's not a very progressive position to take because for most people, $400,000 is a lot of fucking money. You know, I'm making 50 grand in the middle of 400,000. Who needs that? Give us more of it. But they're trying to live in, in both of these worlds. Now, the thing that I find really astonishing about this is that if you, if the Republican Party had not been entranced by Donald Trump, 
and you can always see this uh, anytime somebody is asked uh, if if uh, Joe Biden won the election. They all know that he did. They all acknowledge that he did until they're asked by someone with a microphone in their face and they're uh, facing an election and they're terrified of his base, which is stupid. If everyone did their Spartacus moment and just joined together and said, no, he lost. <laughs> Let's, they're, they're still not going to vote for Bernie Sanders next time. So just, you know, take it and, and kind of try to correct the course for the Republican party. But where the Republican party is right now in economics is utterly baffling, right? So they've taken the populist thing and Gerard Baker, um, from the Wall Street Journal, had a piece, I think, yesterday or today, where he's saying, you know, look, they should, you know, if they want to win in the future, the populist economic stuff, and he's talking about, you know, inequality, something you wouldn't really expect in the Wall Street Journal, especially some from somebody who was the editor of the Wall Street Journal. And this is the way they should go. Okay, fine. But in a situation like right now, where you have a billionaire's tax, which is, in one sense, great politics, because, oh, it's 700 people, and these people make way too much money, and you actually give the dollar figures. And, you know, Jeff Bezos paid tax on $88,000 or something last year. That pisses people off. But they can't do this now, because it is utterly impossible, just logistically, to figure out what to tax when it's an unrealized gain, right? And, and do they get the money back? And, you know, like, if, if your budget is, you know, some percentage of it is based on this money, and then, you know, the stock market crashes, you have to give it all back, it was your budget's then totally fucked, right? It's a bizarro, bizarro way. But where are the Republicans filling this gap, right? There used to be some sort of free market ideology that was mostly just talk, but at least somebody was saying something that was different than the Democrats. But what are they saying now? Because they want to give people things too. But when they, you know, walk in front of this stuff and say, no, this is too much, Okay, well, what's your proposal? We're not seeing any counterproposals from anyone. It's absolutely not, you know, in existence as far as I can tell. They, you know, it's, it's the, the uh, Marx Brothers, whatever it is, I'm against it. No matter what it is or who commenced it, I'm against it. That's not a policy. And Donald Trump created that situation where, you know, during the Obama years, the Tea Party stuff was all from this fake idea of free markets, of too much government spending, too much government overreach, and all those people very easily slotted into Donald Trump's world, which was the exact opposite. Now, what are Republicans going to do, uh, you know, as an economic policy in the next couple of years? Well, Matt, you probably know. Well, I mean, the uh, what's interesting is to watch the Marco Rubios, like people who you just know oh, yeah. are unprincipled d-bags and have been from from pretty much the beginning when it comes to, especially to domestic policy he has principles they're yeah. just the wrong ones about foreign policy um but, uh although he does point out at least uh, cuba's human rights uh uh badness he just has the bad solutions for it however uh marco rubio and some of the josh Hawley, like these sort of uh post trump uh we're going to cobble together this new kind of quasi trumpist uh ideology um economic ideology uh was all about like we need to give families more money to breed and such like, right? Which is also Victor <laughs> Victor Orban's yeah, Victor Orban. I'm yeah. I'm uh, I'm being a little bit uh, uncharitable in in my descriptions of it, but like we need to help families start a family. We need to have um you know even before Trump, Mike Huckabee was talking in terms like this uh, too. So was uh, Rick Santorum, mm. right? There was the yeah. uh, uh, feeling of of like anti. DeSantis actually through has started talking a little bit like this. I've noticed, like he he went and spoke at the Claremont Institute, and there was some uh, some li- oh, there God. was some left leaning like tracker or someone who was there in the audience, and they took some video of him, and he was saying something like, you know, a corporate tax cut isn't going to fix this or something like that, right? So even DeSantis kind of sees an opportunity there, even though I don't think he's really a populist guy; he's more of a pragmatist, but. 
Um, but the uh, problem with uh, Rubio is that uh, the whatever the Biden plan is, and we should always be clear here, there is no plan. It's seven people in a room negotiating, and occasionally they'll come out in a press conference and say, well, this is no longer in the plan. This is in the plan. And then people chase around Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema into the bathroom toilets. That is the process. This is not how you're ever supposed to make legislation pass budgets, do anything. It's a disgrace. Uh, It's been a bipartisan disgrace getting to this point over the last seven years in particular. Uh, But it's really awful. And like, it's okay to to point out the awfulness of it. But uh, uh, the Biden plan at some point... until they gave this up, I think this afternoon. We're recording this on Wednesday. Um, what had a big like childcare tax credit, and uh, it, you know, at least two of us here are like getting direct deposits from the government. I'm not. You're I not? don't know how you're getting this. Uh, no. It's going to Joanna. So. I'm so fucking rich, though, <laughs> and that's why I'm not rich. I'm not rich. Uh, it's crazy. Uh, <laughs> um, I'm anyways, not getting this. But these. How are you getting this? Uh, it's. I look. You are scamming the system. I'm absolutely scamming the system. I oh use that. God. I use that money to pay rent. You're a welfare queen on the uh, podcast studio. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but uh, it's basically, it's pretty close to the Mitt Romney, uh, Marco Rubio. Uh, what was the name of this little like subgroup of cons? Reform cons. Uh, really love this stuff. Um, it's, it's really close to that, but Marco Rubio has to be against it. Uh, now. So he's like, this is, this is Marxism. This thing that I was pretty close to what i was proposing over here and you're right michael i think that there like there were principles that were attached to the tea party uh, movement at the time uh stated and the and the politicians that came from that uh espoused and and quite a few of of the best of them uh, believe those principles or believed those principles but after you know, all the the Milk Mulvaney's of the world just turning on a dime as soon as they were anywhere near the proximity to power. Um, they have no credibility at all on any of this. So I, and there's no credibility about using the debt ceiling as a uh, as leverage points, even though that's always been kind of popular with Americans to do that because it, yeah. it reminds you how much money is being spent. But they there is no like general Republican idea about this. So we're just in I think, yeah, this this money printing populist moment um, and also like a very you know pro regulation, pro antitrust bipartisan populist moments just oh yeah different the, the, the tech stuff especially yeah. yeah yeah no i mean i i have to uh take back something i said a number of years ago um i think it was after the time that i interviewed bernie sanders and i said i had a, a some amount of respect for him for for a lot of things and very much disagree with him on on most things but the, my criticism was uh, of the general idea the general consensus that you know he's consistent and i made the argument there's you know, it's not a great thing to spend 40 years not changing your mind. I don't think that's something that one should always be proud of. But now I think maybe I'm wrong about that. And the thing I, the reason is, is because what you just pointed out is when you're in the snake pit of Washington, D.C., where everybody changes their mind depending, depending on where the cash is or where the party has gone and where the power is. I mean, these people all want to keep their jobs, which is pathetic. Um, you know, maybe there is something to say. Uh, for Bernie Sanders in that sense, uh, somebody who was like, you know, swimming upstream for many, many, many years and didn't give a shit. And, you know, he actually changed the party. So uh, whether or not you like what he changed it to, good on him for doing it. The one thing I think in the media, though, that I find really astonishing and really, really, truly astonishing, and I hear it every day, is the cinema um, uh, mansion stuff. Like people just really say, 
Oh my God. I mean, by the way, she's wearing a, a, a vest. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is like, is, is this the Barack Obama brown suit thing? I mean, that which never, I don't think really even happened, but like she's wearing a vest. I mean, in that guy, Don Winslow, who was some sort of novelist, but also the worst fucking person on Twitter. He's just like this an angry, annoying person. He's like, real holy shit arizona it's like and i looked at i thought she said something like she denied the holocaust in the video or something but it was just her wearing a fucking jacket and i was like oh i had no sleeves on it she looked like d snyder from twisted sister i'm like okay great fantastic let me go to the next video but the thing about it is the hatred towards these people and like you know get on board it's like motherfuckers do you realize that joe mentions from west virginia and not from new york why do people talk about everybody as if they're from california or new york like, they have to get on side. This is like, no, no, no. No, they have to, you know, they got elected for a reason, and their constituents want something very particular. And trust me, they're in tune with what their constituents want. They're not flying in the face with what they want. But it's an unbelievable thing, constantly. It seems like the most stupid, idiotic, pointless thing to actually point out. But every time I watch, you know, cable news or Twitter, it's like, get on board, mansion. You're really obstructing. It's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. He's from, he's from uh, West Virginia. And you guys maybe should look at European politics. Because in Europe, they would be in a coalition government and Joe Manchin would be in like the sort of liberal workers party or whatever it might be. Um, the populist kind of left of center party that's like loves unions or something. And, you know, Sinema, I have no idea what the Arizona equivalent would be. She but it's like either. people who say like every election cycle, you know, lament the fact that we only have two parties then just denounce people for not acting within those two parties exactly how they should act, because I think so. I mean, right? this is how it should be. I want legislation passed, like, so you get on board. It's definitely like a tactic, though. Like, it's like you're, you're doing this kind of like in-group plea, right? Like, you don't want to be the heretic within the yeah. group, which is also, it's, it's interesting, something similar is happening in Buffalo. Uh, in Buffalo, there was a mayoral race this year, and actually a young woman, a socialist, won the Democratic primary. Um, oh, yeah, you wrote yeah, about I wrote, this, I wrote a you? short piece yeah. about for Inquirer. And anyway, so now she's the Democratic nominee, but the incumbent mayor won't give up. He's like, I'm just going to run a write-in candidate, candidacy. And actually, in the polls, he's actually winning, like Byron Brown uh, versus India Walton, who's a socialist. And I hear a lot of leftist, like, leftist people saying, no, you got to vote blue. Like, you got to vote for the party. Um, it's not fair that he's still running. And I'm like, how is it not fair? Like, people are allowed to vote. You don't have to be a Democrat to, like, vote. That's not the rule. Um, but it's funny because a lot of times the establishment Democrats would use that argument towards the leftists. Like, no, you got to vote for our nominee. You can't vote, not vote for the nominee. Uh, but they're trying to flip the argument on them, right? Um, and I think that's that's a lot of what is happening to Manchin and Cinema is that progressives are used to used to being the ones who are being told, you have to suck it up and vote for us. You have to vote for this legislation. It's better take half a loaf, blah, blah, blah. They're trying to do that to Cinema and Manchin right now. Um, so I almost feel like both halves of the party have done that to each other. But ultimately, it's not going to work sure. for exactly the reason you described. Like, they're dealing with a different pol- political constituency. They don't care what, like, Daily Coast writers or whatever are saying to them. Like, that's not yeah. their voters. Or the fact that NBC says that uh, Kristen Cinema is uh, uh, bad for bisexuals. Right, yeah. Matt? She's, uh, she- you have a lot. You have a lot. You have a lot of thoughts <laughs> on this. I know, because I had to turn my phone off. You were just hitting me up with, like, no, thoughts just- on her bisexuality. Like, uh, you knew going into this, when you knew it was going to be <laughs> Cinema Mansion season, that it was just going to be a beautiful uh, uh, 
display by a lot of journalistic organizations or allegedly journalistic organizations. NBC. We're, we're going to be absolutely pawing through their, like the, the trash bins of their vacation homes looking for used whatever the hell, condoms or something. Like it was going to be so stupid and, uh, and not fair and misreading or conspiratorial. Like Josh Marshall. That talking points media has had a series of like, you know, I've I've got the line in, you know, I've I think that Kristen Sinema is going to run this into independent. She's been like, she's hashed this out forever. It's like there's no, you don't actually have any evidence from any. You're speculating um, because you can't have it in your own brain. Like your brain does not allow the information uh, that she doesn't like this bill um, and doesn't like aspects of it and is using your negotiating uh, uh, power to go in this direction. Like you just can't accept it. And so she must be demonized. And it's a great sort of like, you can see the purpose of journalistic organizations. It is revealed in these moments. We have to attack these people. Joe Manchin, according to Rolling Stone magazine, which is a music magazine um, uh, is about, he's already destroyed the planet. I wish I was speaking hyperbolically. That was like the, the headline and the lead of a piece that ran a couple of weeks ago. Um, and this is sort of nonstop targeting of people in the guise of journalism gives away the game like that. Actually, the instrumentation that you're using right now of of this journalistic outfit out, uh, is to produce um, results within the Democratic coalition and to punish people who are seen to be getting in the way of it. It's amazing. Can I read you a sentence from this? Yeah. And by the way, I started this by um, talking about uh, cinema's bisexuality, not because I give a shit about it, because I truly don't. Uh, it's because NBC has a section called Think, which apparently is optional. Uh, that's the name of the, <laughs> the, the, the... And this is a uh, piece that says, is Arizona's Kirsten Cinema bad for bisexual Americans. Literally, I mean, that's the headline. There's so much ridiculousness in there. This is kind of a mild sentence, but I think it's kind of telling. This is the sentence. As a bisexual woman and one who, like cinema, is white and cisgender, oh, no. I now cringe every time the senator makes the headlines. So this is a, a, a kind of perfect example of where we are with kind of identity politics is that this person believes uh, much like we were talking about before, because it doesn't really exist in the world, that if you are a bisexual and she is a bisexual and cinema is making bad policy, that it reflects badly on bisexual because everyone's the same. You know, if you if you're, you have a healthy sexual appetite that includes both genders and, you know, that, therefore, it's reflecting poorly on you because she refuses to pass the reconciliation. I don't even follow. Yeah, to I mean, be honest, I, do most people point, even know? Do most people even, even know that about cinema? Is that like a? Like, no, know, is that yeah. like? We have yeah. this problem. We have this I, I problem was, of bi politicians, and they have all these stereotypes about bi politicians that they all hate the reconciliation like legislation or like. like well, <laughs> in real life, though, this is according to NBC. I want to read you a clause of a sentence because I want, I'm wondering if you guys know this. Bi women, oh, oh no, oh, sorry. No. Bi women are constantly told we're untrustworthy. What is this? Is this a what? real? Is it like? I'm going to ask. I know some people I know, I know who identify as bisexual, and I want to know. We are told means that somehow you're on the street. Someone says, "I get. I think that person's bi." Hold on, get like you know, hold my coffee. I'm gonna go across the street, and they go across the street like you're really untrustworthy, and then they run back. Yeah, yeah. And it's like fine, I fucking got him. We're constantly told, so basically, you have to create 
this stereotype to even create this article. I mean, I, I was unaware that bi people were untrustworthy think, or, or, or thought to be. I think that that is just a bad writing way of saying that a lot of people are like, yeah, I don't believe you. That's not untrustworthy. Yeah. They think you're a bullshitter. You're, you're saying that you're bisexual, but you really like one team and you're just trying to uh, to look special. Uh, I think that's probably what she's referring to. At any rate, it makes – I mean, uh, on all these kind of things, I as like a, a white dude Californian who's just normal – Cis. Uh, cis, whatever, uh, 53. Um, like imagine <laughs> if I had to go through life, if there – that everyone who – it was sort of like fits my vague profile that I had to think about what that reflects on me. My so God, Matt, are you saying right now, you are you saying right now that it is white privilege and the privilege that you actually have is that you don't have to think or act within a group. Abs- that is your privilege. Absolutely. And I, I, yes. I, I that is real white. Privilege. I mean it, that, and you know, whatever like basic advantages I have of growing up in a great country in a great state and, uh, in a you know it was the 70s so we weren't really raised particularly well uh but i <laughs> but i uh, but it was great you know you get to exercise freedom uh, but yeah that that is a huge privilege and i think about this all the time we do a podcast with camille foster i mean how much uh of and he you know has successfully fended created a force field around the question but so much of the discourse that's pointed at him and, and Zed, i wonder if this happened to you after you wrote about john mcquarter in the new york times where people are like Basically, how dare you, because of your identity, do this? A question that is never asked to me even once ever. Um, I don't know that it's happened after mid-quarter. I haven't, I haven't looked around too much since that. Uh, that literally just published this week or like yesterday. So I haven't looked around too much. But it does happen to me like – that's an invitation for it, listeners. Go out there and yeah, tell you, yeah. how yeah, dare you. Guys can, you guys should harass me. No, um, I think – no, it does happen sometimes because I think there's just like claim made to tribal loyalty, right? Like you are in this group, you have certain expectations, and if you want to stay in it, you you need to like you know act a certain way. And it obviously like happens to Camille all the time, right? Like like when he went on Bill Maher, yeah. for instance, and talked about COVID and vaccine distribution, and I was happening to him. But yeah, I think that does it is something that's invoked and deployed against you and. You know, it's something, again, that happens all over the world, like going back to like the India-Pakistan cricket match or like in in other circumstances or situations. And it is actually like, to me, it is like actually racist. Like it's implying that someone who has certain heritage or ethnic background or skin color needs to think a certain way, comport to stereotypes, and that needs to be enforced upon them, right? And that it sounds like something you might expect, like an early Lester Maddox, who was the segregationist governor of Georgia or something to say. Like, But for some reason now, you'll find that in like progressive mainstream publications. And it's it almost sounds a little cringeworthy just to say that it's just racist, but it actually I actually do think it's racist. I probably wouldn't say that to someone who wrote it because they just like stop talking to me as soon as I say that. I'd probably try to find a more diplomatic way to say it. But at least internally, I understand that's what I'm confronting. Like, that's what I'm seeing. Um, the, yeah. Zed, is there a version of this for you? And I'll give you the, the Camille version because I've seen it up close many, many times. This happens in, in I, so God knows how much it happens to him. I can extrapolate the number of times I've seen it when I'm with him. Last time he was out, um, where I live, uh, a fairly white area and, uh, but a very progressive area. And we were sitting outside and eating. And a woman with a dog 
was walking by and you can uh, hear the full story on the Patreon, by the way, let's go back. I don't know what episode it was, but she's clearly like steering the dog towards Camille. And it's like the, the opposite of why dogs used to be steered towards people like Camille. And it was like, pet my dog. And then the second Camille's like, Oh, it turns around. He's like, Oh, Hey, Hey, Hey. And the woman's like, I'm really sorry about George. Floyd. Just like, it took like no time at all. It was, it wasn't that fast, but it's like very quickly. It always happens. Like, you know, I really think black lives matter. And Camille's wow. like, what? And there was, and there were, that time, Camille loves fucking with them, and he's just like, "Yeah, I think that whole movement's dumb, or whatever." And he says something to that effect, and they're like, "Wait, what?" Because there are people who don't know black people, so they just assume they have to go and confess their sins to them. Is that is there a version of that, like a post nine eleven version of being a, the the son of Pakistani immigrants? It's people come up and like, "I'm so sorry about Islamophobia after nine eleven or Guantanamo no, or something." No, no, there was, and I, I wrote about this in the Milk Order review because I opened it with an, an anecdote about this. But like, there was like an actual nice yeah. version of that, which was like right after nine eleven when a lot of people were scared. Just a friend of our family who knew us very well, like, came up to us and was like, "Dude, if anyone messes with you, you know, I'll take care of it. Like, don't worry about it." And like. I thought that was actually very kind yeah. and, and it was it was the right moment to do that. But if you're talking about like just like stereotyping and like assuming they know everything about you kind of thing. Yeah, I remember like after uh when I was working at Berkeley on my polarization project in twenty eighteen and um or whenever the whenever the terrorist attack was in New Zealand, uh the the like Chancellor mm-hmm. of Berkeley like sent like Muslim like employees and students I don't know I don't know if I was on a list, he probably sent it like to she probably <laughs> you're on a Muslim no, list. I don't in think I was on a wow, list. I think I think she probably just sent it. I think she probably just sent it to like some employee list or something and assumed that like the Muslims would get the message or whatever. But like um, she was like, yeah, I just want to my heart goes out to all of you. I know this has been really hard for you. And I'm like, I wrote it back a very like kind of, you know, sympathetic email being like, oh, thank you and all. But like this happened halfway around the world. I'm not going to let a terrorist like ruin my life. I'm not like traumatized or anything like there's like bombings in Pakistan all the time. Like terrorists always try to kill us. Yeah. D- d- does she, does she email when like, there's like a mass shooting in Pakistan no, or like, like a, you know, a mosque it's just, it's just like an expectation happens? among progressives now that we have like a collective identity, like the Borg in Star Trek. And like, if something bad happened to one of us in this one very specific way, where it's like uh, a danger they recognize, which a white nationalist is a danger. I mean, that was a terrible thing that happened in New Zealand. Um, but they they think that like there's a certain response you have to give to people over that, which I think we saw a lot in 2020 with stuff like Michael Brown and Breonna Taylor. Um, I think there was like a Harvard Crimson, uh, like there was a student, a pre med student who wrote something recently about how like she couldn't do her test because of Breonna Taylor and stuff like. And like you know, it, it's interesting because like like we were saying earlier, like this stuff is willed into existence. It's like a choice to have a collective like consciousness like that. Like I don't really relate. I like. I think it was a horrible thing that happened in New Zealand, obviously. But when, like, when I read the newspaper about terrorist attacks in Afghanistan, I think those are horrible things too. I don't have a collective collective consciousness to where like I'm scared of white nationalists because someone does something fifteen thousand miles away, and like I, I feel like I'm. And grieving, you told the right? story of Lee Fang in right. your review, right? I mean, there's something similar when when uh, Lee Fang. Uh, interviewed mm. somebody about this. I mean, tell that yeah. story because you re- you mentioned the review and it, it actually fit nicely. Yeah. Into so what I, I you know I wanted to give this story for for really, really two reasons. One, Lee is a very good friend of mine. I've worked I've worked with him at the Intercept and I know him very well. Uh, and I felt really bad for him about what happened. So I wanted to include the story for that reason. The other reason I wanted to include it is because it kind of makes John's point about his book, um, which is called "Woke Racism." By the way, which is, it, it just came out. Um, basically, John is arguing in the book that. 
one of the things that like wokeness does is it creates an entirely different set of standards for minorities than everyone else. And like this, this coddling is actually bad for minorities, particularly African Americans. I mean, that's mo- that's more more of why he engages on this issue than anything else. It's not that he thinks it's like mean to white people or anything, but he actually thinks it's bad for black people. And so I, I what happened was my friend Lee in the summer of 2020, I think he was, I think it was in Oakland or it was somewhere in the Bay Area. He went to like a series of Black Lives Matter rallies and protests and George Floyd stuff. And he talked to a lot of people and he tweeted out the interviews on video. And just instead of writing an article, he just did mm-hmm. these little video clips. He did he did several of them. He didn't just pick one person. Uh, but one of the people that he interviewed was a young man named Max. Uh, he was an African-American guy. Um, I think he's from like a middle class or working class background. And he said um, something. Uh, I don't know. I have the quote pulled up. But basically, he was saying something like, you know, if I was killed by a white guy, it'd be like national news. But if I was killed by a black person, like nobody would care. And he, the reason he brought this up is because he had several family members who had been killed in homicides, right? Um, Oakland actually has experienced yeah. a huge, a huge in homicide Oakland, yeah. over the past years. Really tragic, by the way. And so Lee just tweeted this out. He didn't give any commentary or anything. It was one in a series of interviews of people he did. And one of his coworkers at The Intercept said something like, stop being racist. And then, like, a ton of people, like, thousands of people on Twitter, like, started, like, attacking Lee about this. Other journalists at, like, reputable publications started attacking him over this. Uh, and eventually... And, 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 let's, and, and let's keep in mind here, this is, he's being attacked for something somebody else said. Exactly. Yeah, right? This interview exactly. put a, a, a microphone in a guy's face. Uh, it was filmed, and then he put it on Twitter. That's what so, so is the argument, in a way, that he should have been Katie Couric? And saved RGB from herself yeah. in a way, and left that interview on the cutting room floor. Yeah, yeah I mean, I think, and well, <laughs> <That's insane. laughs> well, look, I think that the the problem is is that they don't recognize these the people who have this ideology don't recognize any story where white people aren't the villains and minorities are just aren't the virtuous victims, right? Like, if it's more nuanced than that, then it's like this is scrambling our brains. Like, this is scrambling like the way that we think about the world, all the heuristics that we use to make sense of things, right? And I think that they, mm-hmm. that you know, there's this, this sensitivity about acknowledging that like minorities can do things that are wrong too, right? Like they make mistakes too. There's things that we could do better, just like anyone can do better. And to me, that is the most, um, you know, against racism. That that's the that's the most deracializing thing that you can believe because then you believe that just we're just we're all human beings, right? And human beings have good and bad. We're all capable of everything, yeah. right? And I think that's what Max, who who Lee was interviewing, was trying to say, was saying that this was all. Of course, police brutality is an issue, but so is this like community violence that he's ex- he's personally experienced through the de- deaths of his family members. Um, but they don't want to recognize that because they they always want to make white people the villains of everything. And I'm like, these people can barely dance. How can they be behind every conspiracy in the world, right? Like, <laughs> it's the same thing I think about anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. I'm like, there's only like a few million of these people in the whole world. They can't be behind every bad thing, right? Like, yeah, there has yeah, to be other bad yeah. people out there besides just them, right? Oh, they're um, very clever. Is that yeah? Um, <laughs> that's, but it reminds me of a uh, Camille. This is when I I lament that uh, Camille's here. I mostly don't because he I, I don't like him personally. Yeah. Um, but I lament when he's not. Here because he has a very good riff on on this and of um, about pride in one's race and he once spoke about this I can't remember on TV and uh, you know it was I think it was President Obama saying you know be proud I think it was a speech at Howard or something and Camille is a very nuanced way of looking at this if you if you are going to own all of the good things that are done you know, in name of race, you have to own the bad things too. It's, it's not a one way street. And I think it's a, a, maybe a Zora Neale Hurston quote or something that, that uh, he was building off of. But that's the thing is that when you're, when you're doing these things and it becomes so complicated 
And you talk about this video and like this black kid named Max and blah, blah. And it's like, wait, the interviewer is Lee, who's Asian, right? And sometimes Asians are white adjacent, which is one of my favorite phrases of the past 10 years. And sometimes they're not, right? And sometimes they're BIPOC and, you know, you know, part of, look, you see this stuff all the time. And I've argued with friends about this um, one in particular. But yeah, it's, it's just a weird thing that we choose these things depending on the situation. And there's no consistency to them whatsoever. I mean, there is, there is for uh, African Americans, but there is also that um, thing that you all, always have to cue to a very particular line or you're going to be Camille. And Camille's going to be an Uncle Tom. I mean, the, the number of times Camille's been called a sellout, a Tom, you know, all of the other things. Yeah, the the, uh, fra- the phrase of choice. The phrase point. of choice for us is coconuts, right? Like we're brown on the outside, white on the inside. Mm. Yeah, yeah. So we we have yeah. we have. Sometimes people well, just, might call me Uncle Tom. And I'm like, you got to learn the right slurs, right? Like, like <laughs> what, what are you right supposed one, to like, be as a Pakistani American? I mean, Pakistani Americans do quite well, I think. Right? Is I mean, are you, um, yeah. Are you, te- are you technically an Asian American Pacific Islander? Uh, is that, is that, yeah, that's you an apple? The, that's like the stupid. If you're in England, the, yeah. The, uh, the stupid, like AAPI. Like I've never in my life met someone being like, "Yeah, I'm an AAPI. I, I enjoy a. That's a new one. I too. enjoy AAPI cultural events. I speak AAPI yeah. language. Like, yeah, yeah it's just like a, it's like a census category, right? Like they're just like transposing <laughs> on us. Because um, actually, it's a very diverse group and set of people with, from a lot of different cultures, a lot of different linguistic backgrounds and like class standing. Why is like, Asia one place and then Pacific Islander is the one that's big? They get specific about that. Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I mean, you could, also, why, between, don't, like, why don't we get you know, broken Laos out? Laos and India. Why don't we get broken out in BIPOC? Why Why don't, like, why are, like, why are we all under POC? We're the largest continent, man. Like, plus we all yeah. like the Latin Americans, too, and like, so. I, I think this is going to end up uh, like uh, the Balkans. You're gonna yeah. be t- there's gonna be infighting of who's getting the most attention. Um, Matt, is there anything else we should talk about? I'm, I'm trying to let me look at the time here. I'll cut this out. We're 142. So should we wrap this? Yeah, or? let's let's wrap. This has been a, this has been a good uh, good run. Yeah, it's been okay. Fun. All right. Well, I will. Um, I'll pick it up here. Okay. All right. Well, we um, covered a lot. We covered a lot of things that would have been great if Camille were here. So mm-hmm. we want to make sure that he knows. That his absence uh, really detracted from the conversation. Well, um, but but his uh, the tryout for his replacement, uh, the, the great re- great we call it the great, the great replacements around here. The by great the way. replacement. Yeah. No, yes. uh, yes. that's more Asian on on black violence. We we can't. Yeah, yeah. Have that. yeah. No. What? About I, we got rid of the buy and we replaced it with the pock. Um, I'm I'm pro pock. Tupac. Oh god. <laughs> Um, Zed Jelani, thank you so much for joining yeah, us for the second you. time, but yeah. now with us and not just Camille and, uh, and our friend Coleman Hughes and, uh, check out the Substack and, uh, check out uh, all the other stuff you do. You're, you're around, you're very, very prolific on Twitter and you have a new documentary coming out, don't you? Yeah. So I'm doing a second documentary with Fox. Uh, this one's on prop a, which is a police, basically it's a police staffing referendum that they're voting on in, uh, First week of November, same as uh, the Virginia election, the other elections. And it's it's really a microcosm of the policing debates that are happening all over America. So, um, you know, talk to people on both sides, talk to a lot of people who live in the city of Austin, Texas, where it's happening. And uh, I think it's going to be an enjoyable watch and just a, a good good dive into these police and crime issues. So, And I'll you can it. find that on your Twitter feed. I assume you'll be promoting Yeah, I'll promote it. All right. Um, ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, until next time. And if you are bored and you need more fifth column, as most of you do, you tell us all the time, there is 
a Patreon. And if you're not a subscriber, you are a fucking communist. Yes. And you might as well go to Zed Substack, where all the communists hang out, because yeah. we don't want you. Yes. But come to ours. Uh, yeah. Bye. Bye. We, we know of new methods of attack. The Trojan